Welcome to Act 3, the podcast where we explore how to thoughtfully shape the rest of our lives. I'm your host, Kara Gray. This podcast is sponsored by Good Morning Freedom, my retirement coaching service where I help executives and professionals plan their Act 3. For more information, stay tuned until the end. Today, we welcome Jake Schlesinger to the podcast. Jake is president and CEO of the United States Japan Foundation, an organization that grants and runs a fellowship program dedicated to bolstering relations between the two countries. Jake joined the USJF from the Wall Street Journal, where he worked for more than 30 years as a reporter and editor in Washington, D.C., Tokyo, and Detroit. At the Journal, he covered economics and economic policy, chronicled elections and summits, trade wars and market crashes, labor strikes, the 9-11 terror attacks in the U.S., and Japan's 2011 triple disaster of earthquake, tsunami, and the Fukushima nuclear meltdown. Jake was the journal's Tokyo bureau chief, deputy Washington bureau chief, and global financial regulation editor. Jake was a member of the journal team, winning the 2003 Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting on the dot-com bubble and crash. In 2014, he was given Stanford's Shorenstein Journalism Award, presented annually to a reporter helping global audiences understand the complexities of the Asia-Pacific region. Jake grew up in East Lansing, Michigan, and has a BA in economics from Harvard. He lives in Washington with his wife, Louisa, a professor in Japanese history. They have two daughters, one currently on a Fulbright in Taiwan, the other doing graduate studies in chemical physics at the University of Minnesota. Welcome to the podcast, Jake. Thank you so much, Kara. It's really a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be here with me today. Um, so you got on my radar because I was reading an article in The Atlantic recently called The New Old Age by David Brooks. And the premise of this is that this life stage can teach us all about meaning and purpose before it's too late. And the focus was talking to people who had gone through programs such as the Distinguished Career Institute at Stanford. These programs are a way for people who have left their main professional career to discover what's next. So I know you from the Wall Street Journal, and so does everyone else. Um, your identity was very much tied to your work. Tell us about those years at the Journal and what you loved about your job and why you chose to leave. Yeah, um, all great questions. So um, let me just to, to roll back a little bit. I joined the yeah. Journal pretty much shortly after college. Um, I had spent my four years in college on the, the school newspaper um, and you know, sort of stumbled into journalism, but felt at the end of my, my time in college that I was only qualified for one thing, which was journalism. Uh, a lot of my friends had gone on to the Wall Street Journal. I did an internship there um, and so was fortunate enough to to get a job at the Journal a couple of years after graduating and 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 stayed. Um, there was a lot to love about it. Um, I mean, I think journalism still, despite all the changes that are going on in the industry, is is really one of the great jobs and professions in the world. It's a chance. It's a, it's a ticket to talk to anybody and ask them whatever questions you want. It's to witness a lot of things. It's to inform people about the world and, and help influence them. And the journal was a fabulous platform to do that. Um, I, you know, a great audience, big readership um, globally. And 
you know, and, and, and the prominence to be able to get you the access that isn't always the case with other news organizations. But I found, and, and this really, um, I know this sounds a little bit like, you know, it's not, it's not you, it's me, um, <laughs> sort of a bit of a, sort of a breakup terms, but I did find in the case of the journal that I had been doing it a long time. Um, and it just wasn't as much fun anymore, not because any of the things I'd said about why it was great had changed, but really just, I'd been doing them and it was the same thing and variations on the same thing. And I felt to get to the point that you were making earlier, it took me a very long time to come to that realization and to admit that realization for a variety of reasons, um, you know, partly just because you get comfortable and stable and the devil you know is always better than the devil you don't. Um, but some of it was exactly what you're talking about, which was identity that I think because I'd been doing it for so long, um, that that my personal and general identity was very much wrapped up in the institution. And I think that made the stakes of leaving, even when I had concluded that I, at some level, really needed to find something different to do, much higher because it was in some ways really was a, a, a break from not just a job, but just who I was. Yeah. So um, you went to the Distinguished Careers Institute at Stanford. Tell us about how you found that program. I know these programs are springing up at all right. different universities right now, which is really exciting. Um, tell us about the decision to go there sure. and what your time there looked like. Yeah. So, but to, first to, to just key off the, the first thing yeah. you said about springing up, I would just say, um, you know, everyone is going to be different and I can only speak to the one in any detail Stanford, but I thought it was an invaluable and fabulous experience. And I would encourage any of your audience to, who are going through these things to take a serious look at any of the programs that are springing up that, that are, that, that are convenient for them and that they can accommodate just because I think it does make a big difference and probably I know you want to get into that more a little bit later, but 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 just to sort of say that up front. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's funny, the Stanford program was one of two, I I believe they like to consider it as one of the two original ones. There's something at Harvard called the American Leadership Institute. Um, although they're very different programs, the, as I understand the Harvard program, you have to go in with a clear project and the whole point of it is to help you come up with a project, um, which in some ways is a great idea. I don't think I could possibly have done that because I myself was, to be honest, lost. And the whole point of the Stanford program is the exact opposite, which is you don't, I mean, if you have a project, you're welcome to come in and work on it. You don't need a project. You don't have to have anything other than a commitment to being there and being open-minded, um, which is really what I needed at that point. The Stanford program, um, it, I don't know about the Harvard program, the Stanford program, does very little, if any, advertising at all. It was all word of mouth. Um, and I actually found out about it completely by accident. Um, it happened that my wife's family is from Palo Alto. Her parents had passed away and they had this house that they ultimately needed to sell, but there was an interim period. And so they were renting it out. And it, as it turned out, one of the people who was a fellow in that program, you know, was looking for housing in Palo Alto and ended up renting out part of the house. And so she just became a, was a tenant and then became friends with my wife and her sister and introduced me to the program. So it was completely by accident. Um, but as soon as she described it to me, I realized, you know, I have, <laughs> I have to do this or I have to try and do this. Um, 
Uh, and it's interesting. I remember we met for tea around Thanksgiving, which was when I was out there. The deadline for applying was December. Um, and I thought very seriously about dropping everything and applying right away. I, I couldn't make that deadline, but ended up applying the next year. Um, and then, you know, it, it was it was just a great experience, which I can explain if you want to be more specific about what it was. But I did find that it, it was invaluable to me and I could never have made the transition that I made without having gone through it. So let's talk about that transition. As as we have alluded to and spoken about a bit before, this identity thing of just being so tied to a career, which was, you know, almost everybody is when they get to this phase in life. And you even mentioned in the article, like going to a doctor and he recognized you right. because of your name. It's the Wall Street Journal. Um, so tell me about that process for you, yeah. about letting go of that sure. identity. So, so on that anecdote about the the doctor, I thought it was an excellent article and David did a fabulous job, but he, he didn't quite capture the point I was trying to make with that, which wasn't so much that the doctor recognized me. It was that this was a doctor who was hard to get into and I had to use somebody who knew him to get in. And it occurred to me when he said that, that probably the only reason he agreed to work me into his schedule was because he'd looked me up and realized what I had done. And so it, it what I, it, the implication I was trying to make there was just that, that it opens doors, not just professionally, but in other aspects of your life too. And those are things that are kind of hard to give up. Um, but as I say, I think a couple of things. One was, um, you know, at some level, your unhappiness is such that, that you know, the, the cost and benefit equation simply changes. That I think I had reached a point where um, I just felt stagnant, that I wasn't growing, um, that I had lost you know, the thrill of doing what I was doing, which is a shame because journalism is such a thrilling profession. And if you aren't thrilled when you're doing it, then you really shouldn't be doing it. Um, especially to be honest, given that the pay relative pay versus other professions that you could use those skills for. Um, and so I, that itself was a turning point, but the Stanford program and presumably other programs like that was incredibly helpful because it, I mean, it did a lot of things. One was it gave you an excuse to take a break. I think if I had just quit the journal without another credential, let's be honest, um, that would have been hard. But to say, oh, I'm on a fellowship at Stanford, even if no one knows what the fellowship is and you can't really define it, gives you something else to say. And so that eases the transition from one credential to another. Um, the way the Stanford program is set up, it really, you know, the, the three pillars that they talk about and happy to elaborate on them and the structure. They they talk about purpose, uh, community, and wellness. And mm -hmm. for me, I found that the community aspect was important in ways I never would have considered, which is that you're not just going as your own fellow. You're going as part of a very carefully chosen and curated cohort of people, roughly 30, 35 people. Um, you know, ages and and backgrounds vary, but roughly in the same age range of late fifties, early mid sixties, um, people who've all chosen to go there because they're seeking something different for a next stage. And I think the power of being immersed in a group like that opened me up to thinking about myself and the world differently ways I never would have. It, it's funny. I, and I felt it from the beginning. I was, I, I remember, um, reading the, the, the short bios of all the people who were going to be in my cohort on the plane flying from Washington to San Francisco. 
I mean, I had read them before, but was reviewing them and just saying, you know, there's nobody here who's like me. I'm not going to be friends with any of them. I'm just going to take classes. And then when you get in the room with them, we have this opening reception and you just start talking and you realize it's not about the resumes at that point. It's about personality and it's about what they're seeking and it's about being open-minded about helping each other. And I remember saying to my wife after the first couple of days, I said, it's like I walked into an AA meeting, um, uh, you know, but but for whatever it is for, for reinvention where everybody is just so open and so vulnerable and so supportive and that just helps you approach this in a much easier way than I could have just done on my own. Wow. Um, amazing. So you talked about um, where the article spoke about uh, a few different things that you explored. Um, spirituality was one of them. Hmm. Um, tell us about that journey. Sure. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. Um, that particular line has triggered a lot of um, somewhat snide comments from people <laughs> that I've known who, um, you know, A, have been skeptical about it. Um, and, uh, you know, I think didn't identify me with that. Um, and so I'd say a few things. One is what's interesting, and I would have put myself in this category before I went to Stanford. A lot of people confuse spirituality with religion. Um, hmm. And obviously there's a big overlap, but what I came to understand and appreciate is there's also a big portion of what you might call spirituality, which has nothing to do with religion. Um, and maybe most people know that, but I don't think I did. And I think the people who were making the snarky comments to me probably didn't understand that distinction either. What I meant was, I think that partly through my own predilection, partly through the kind of work that I did, it was all very intellectual, all very ego in an ego sense um, driven. And so everything was logical at sometimes. And I think that also had something to do with the discomfort or the displeasure or the unhappiness that, that came up was you might feel something elsewhere or have an emotion or a, a pit in your stomach or a instinct but the logic of your mind keeps overruling it and saying, no, you know, you need to do this and doesn't matter what you're feeling, but the logic says you need to, you know, continue doing this or, or approach that. And I think it was just, I would, I guess I define spirituality as, as quelling that part of your brain and being open to listening to other things and exposing yourself to other influences, whether it's, you know, people talk about, you know, the universe speaking, so to speak, um, which I've come to believe in more than I think I ever did. Um, or, you know, listening to your own instincts or um, just being open to other influences and being less skeptical of them. And, I, and as I say, I say all of this as somebody who really did think all this was a bunch of BS before I went over there and, and really could never have imagined getting into all of those things. Um, and just found that just the being open-minded to things that you're skeptical of that, and just saying, look, if it, if it's helping other people, you know, maybe it can help me and just taking a deep breath rather than being so judgmental up front. So, yeah, well, I'm not being snarky at all. <laughs> no, 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 I appreciate that. And I didn't say you were, I'm just saying. <laughs> no, I know. I can imagine. If the line stuck out to people. For sure. Um, did you, and did you develop any spiritual daily practices as a result that you've incorporated into your life now? Um, you know, I did as transitional, I would say. So mm -hmm. one class that I took um, 
relied very heavily on meditation. In fact, there was like a, the daily homework assignment was to have a meditative practice and to, and to build on it. And I would say by the end of that term, you know, I, I was proud of my, uh, my meditative practice where I could go, you know, 20, 30 minutes without, you know, listening to anything, doing anything, which for me is a huge deal. I have not continued it. Um, sometimes I think I should, I, I think it helped me get over a hump. Um, and I think I now have that in my toolkit if I need to go back to it. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think the other thing to think about is in all these things is rather than, I mean, I think there was a danger. And for me, this was a period of time where, you know, you're replacing one obsession with another obsession. And so I think, you know, if you say, oh, I have to meditate and I have to have a daily meditative practice, then it essentially becomes another version of the old obsessions that you had. Um, and so I've been more flexible on that. I mean, I think, you know, practice is probably too strong a word. I do believe that I have become much more open-minded to a lot of things that I just simply couldn't see before. Um, and so I think that, whether you call that a practice or just a behavioral mode, um, I would say has been a change for me. Yeah. Let's switch gears a little bit here. You also mentioned that you took some improv classes Thanks. when you were at Stanford. <laughs> Tell me about that. Sure. You know, um, those were great. And I would say surprisingly vital to a lot of everything I'm talking about. And it's funny too, because again, I had an image of improv in the same way I had an image of spirituality before I went, although not a negative one, but a, but a very narrow one, which is, oh, improv means, you know, you go to a comedy club and, you know, you stand in front of an audience and you, um, and you make a bunch of funny jokes. And obviously that is part of improv, but the pedagogy of improv and the way it was used there is very much about also changing your mindset and listening to other influences and just being flexible in how you look at things and not having a need to be all structured. Um, and so, and, and there was one particular, uh, uh, instructor who did an improv class who, um, uh, who's sort of, I'm, I'm blanking on her name now, I'm sorry to say, but, but who was a sort of known instructor in this field, uh, who's based out there. Um, and she very much defined it as, you know, it's, it's listening to other things rather than, you know, just do something without, and, and, and be flexible on how you respond rather than, than think, oh, I can't do this. And so I remember one particular clip and there, I took variations of it. Um, but the two I most liked were, um, uh, one was, uh, a class called spirit of play. And the professor there was really interesting. I mean, he had a whole theory of play versus work and, you know, he didn't, I wish he'd actually talk more because he was so uh, intelligent on these issues, but it was really talking about, you know, seriously about play and what that means in our lives. And then creating these exercises where, you know, you, you started the term with total strangers. And again, keep in mind, this is one of the other interesting things about a program like DCI or presumably the others is they really throw you in with regular students. And so intergeneral, intergenerational engagement is another uh, important aspect of that. And so you're doing these very intimate exercises. Like one of them I remember was like literally wander around the room and then he says, stop. And then you take the person that you're closest to and you just look in their eyes for like five minutes. And, um, and it's weird, especially, you know, I mean, given all of the constraints, you know, you're a 60 year old man and there's a, you know, 19 year old woman that you're, and, and, and so you have to worry about it, but, but you don't, but you shed all of that. And, yeah. and, and, 
it's a strangely meaningful experience to do something like that, which is, or, or you get assigned to a partner and you're supposed to create like five games in with these three things in five minutes, but you can't talk to each other. Um, and you would think, you know, if I were given that assignment before, I would have thought, well, first of all, I can't deal with someone that I haven't known before. And secondly, you know, we have to sit down and we have to talk about it. We have to plan it out. But learning to just do this and not care about the result, not saying, oh, it's going to be perfect, was remarkable. So the other class would I, which was really influential to me, was something called Playback Theater, uh, which is a form of improv that is particularly popular in Israel. The professor was Israeli and is trying to spread it in, in the United States. But this is one where, again, what it is, is, is you, there's, there's formats and someone in the audience suggests a story theme or a character. And again, you're assigned to a team and you just have to figure out ways of acting it out. And the, and, and, and it's interesting. So this guy actually was a computer science professor and this was in the computer science department. And so I used to tell people I was really proud that I could take the computer science class at Stanford, um, which was the only one I probably could have taken. Uh, and the reason was, he said, because computer science relies on teamwork. And he found computer scientists to be terrible at teamwork and that this is a way of breaking down those barriers and those assumptions and the resistance and creating a teamwork mindset. And and the last thing I'll say, sorry, I'm going on so long answer is, is that in improv, the other thing I learned, it sounds cliche, but I don't think I'd heard it before, but it came up in every class is the, the, the core philosophy of improv is yes, and as opposed to yes, but, and or no, but. And so you never reject anyone's idea. You listen to it and you work off of it. And again, for me, that was a simple but revolutionary concept, which you know, that's spiritual. That's another, I guess, practice or mindset. Yeah. I've tried to embed into my new, my new life. So, yeah. Um, and the, the final thing that I took from that article was, um, you also mentioned working, um, in a memoir class yeah. and you were really amazed with how vulnerable people are and what they revealed. And, um, I'm sure that was an eye-opening process for yourself as well. That's something that's really like yeah. memoir, like legacy, like, oh my God. <laughs> you know? so, so I would say um, it's called a memoir class. And um, I think at first, again, this is maybe one of the, maybe this is a pattern I hadn't thought about before until you were asking these questions of my redefining things that I had thought of. So it's called memoir, but it's not about legacy per se. Ah, it's really, okay. it's, it's really kind of personal essays, I would say. So it's not, wow, I'm writing about my whole life and what I've accomplished, which would be really daunting and frankly, for most of us, kind of boring. Um, it's really more about finding something about yourself that you can write about that is of meaning and that would be meaningful to you to write it. And it's unlocking those things. And I would say a couple of things about that, which was phenomenal to me. One was, as you say, being surprised at what people were willing to share. And that gets back to the thing I'd said earlier about the community, which is, I mean, the, the whole process in a way was like one giant trust fall. I think people were writing things that they would not, some of them said they were writing that they had, would never have shared even, they had not shared with close friends. But you create a community of trust and of a common bond and it opens up things in you that you were willing to talk about and think about that you wouldn't have before. And that has this virtual reinforcing effect of, you know, the more people share that, the more that you build these bonds of trust. And the professor there, uh, an instructor named John Evans, was truly fabulous about not just, I mean, the brilliant writing mind and editor, but 
creating that kind of environment among these people. Um, and for me, I would just say it was also part of my transformation because while, of course, writing was central to my life and people would say to me, oh, this would be easy, you're a professional writer. It was extremely different. In fact, if anything, as a journalist, the whole point is to write about other people and to ask other people questions. You, And I think in some ways what I realized is I think one of the appeals to me of it was it became a, a shield. Like, in other words, I, I, by exploring other people, I was avoiding doing any self-exploration. And I think this class sort of reintroduced me to writing in a very different and more healthy, self-productive way. So you've gone through this program at Stanford and you come out, you know, finding this um, position, the president and CEO of the United States Japan Foundation. What was the bridge there? Yeah, so um, a couple of things. One is uh, it, it, it was a coincidence in some ways. Uh, I would never have found the job but for someone who was in my cohort uh, in the uh, at the Stanford program. It was a woman, um, and, and I should say one other um, aspect of this fellowship, which I would recommend to your listeners, and, and um, this you can pick up without going to Stanford, there's a, a a product or a book or a whole pedagogy around called Designing Your Life. Mm -hmm. um, and there are two Stanford professors who were at the Stanford D School, Dave Evans and Bill Burnett, who wrote yep. a series of books around it. And Dave Evans uh, was part of the, he was an advisor to this program. And he developed a really important part of the program um, where we would do Designing Your Life exercises. Um, and he created these Designing Your Life teams. And as part, as part of this team, there was a woman who just happened to be assigned to my group and we became, maybe we were friends anyway, but more close friends as part of the six person team. And you talk about personal, but also professional development. As part of her professional development, she's Japanese American woman. Um, I think she had decided later in life, she really wanted to explore her own Japanese roots. Um, and she asked me for, she, so she was invited to join the board of this foundation. Um, and she asked me for help because I had myself had lived in Japan 10 years and had mm -hmm. connections there. And, and to be honest, I didn't really know anything about this foundation, but I looked at their website and realized that I knew um, three of the members of the board who I had just known over the years, my Japan connection. So I wrote them all and said, please help my friend. She's interested in the board. I think she'd be great. And so she got on the board and went to her first board meeting and came back and said, well, you know, the existing president left and there's now a vacancy and you should apply. Um, and at first I said, no, it's not for me. I'm not qualified. I'm not interested. Um, and then this became part of a running discussion of our weekly designing your life group where they all sort of all told me reasons why, I mean, we actually literally talked it through as a group. Um, and I did end up applying and, and, and getting the job. So it, it was partly through that process. I mean, that very specific process, but also I would say tying it back to some of the earlier parts of the discussion, it truly isn't something I was looking for. It truly isn't the kind of job if you had said to me two years ago, this will be your next job, I would have said no way. And I think it was just being more open-minded, being less ego-driven and just listening in a sense, I suppose, to the universe in a way and saying, well, you know, there's a lot of good options out there and there's a lot of me's out there and, you know, I'm not going to, and there's not clear what a best one is, but this one seems like a good next one and it's there and why not, you know, sort of approach it and, and, and consider it as opposed to, you know, having some clear formula in my mind of what is or isn't right for me. So. Yeah. 
So um, tell us anything that you'd like to about the United States Japan Foundation and how my um, listeners can find out more. Sure. Uh, how they can support what what I fabulous love, work you're doing. I, I appreciate your you're asking that. So yeah. I would be. Um, uh, so we're one of the reasons I was brought in, even though I have no background in you know foundations or philanthropy, was that the board really wanted to rethink what we do. And so we're going through a reorganization now, which is very exciting just to think through what is our mission and what should it be. At CORE, we do two main things. We give out grants and we have a fellowship program. Um, we don't need to, we're not We're not taking donations. We have an endowment. So we're. I'm not asking anyone for money, which is always, I've come to learn a good position to be in in this world. It's better than asking for money. Um, but I would say um, a couple of things. Uh, one is, I think that our organization and the broader U.S.-Japan ecosystem, if I may, has been very narrowly focused over many years on just what can U.S.-Japan do for each other? And the main people that we've attracted have been people who are already have a predilection to be interested in Japan or, or vice versa. And one of my goals is to really broaden that out and say this is a moment in the world you know, with so much turmoil and disruption going on in the world where Japan for Americans or the U.S.-Japan relationship can play a really important role in issues that people may care about even if they've never thought about Japan, whether it's climate change or democracy or aging societies or, you know, resilience in the face of natural disasters. You mentioned that I was, you know, in Japan during the tsunami and earthquake of 2011. And one of the remarkable things there is, you know, it was hugely a tragedy. The tsunami, you know, was historically large and, you know, in some ways unprecedented, as was the Fukushima meltdown. And so in some ways, what I'm about to say sounds a little callous, but I think it's still important, which is what got lost in the focus on the tsunami and nuclear tragedy, both of which, of course, should have gotten a lot of attention, is that there was a magnitude nine earthquake 30 miles off the coast of a major metropolitan city, one of the largest cities in the world, Sendai. And you know, 200 miles from Tokyo and the amount of damage and the amount of death and destruction that took place as a result of the earthquake was minimal. That Japan has built an earthquake response infrastructure that is the best in the world. And I say that just to say, giving examples of, you know, where can we learn from Japan? Where can we help Japan, you know, promote the lessons that they were? There was a great piece in the New York Times just the other day about how, you know, Tokyo is set this model of being an affordable major city because of all the public infrastructure there. And so I guess what I'm saying when you're asking what can your audience do is help us think through ways to broaden what it means to be a U.S.-Japan foundation and say, even if you don't know anything about Japan, even if you don't care anything about Japan, are there specific causes or issues that you're interested in that we could play a role in helping advance the cause. So that's great. Well, Jake, this has been everything that I wanted it to be in an interview. So I appreciate your time very much. And um, absolutely. Thank no, you. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Sure. This podcast is sponsored by Good Morning Freedom, my retirement coaching firm. I help executives and professionals plan the non-financial part of their retirement, like how to discover new purpose and how you want to spend your time. I offer a one-on-one -on -one coaching retirement blueprint package where we work together to discover some new avenues of exploration 
for your Act 3. This coaching is completely custom and will provide you with a ton of resources and support as you transition to this new stage of life. For all the details, please go to goodmorningfreedom.com services.